0: I just cannot state this enough. There's no sort of wizard figuring this out. There's no master plan. There's no three-dimensional chess. This changes by the hour. It feels very feral at times. And it is literally the most out-of-control situation I've seen in Washington ever.
1: Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Tuesday, October 24th. Today, I'm joined by Abby Livingston with the latest from the zoo that is the Republican controlled Congress, which still doesn't have a Speaker of the House. There are nine, yes, nine new Republicans running for Speaker now that Jim Jordan's bid for the post fizzled. But can any of them fix this mess? Abby has all the latest intel. And later, Tina Wynn joins Ben to discuss the intrigue and infighting behind the Trump shadow government that's already being created to take over Washington if Republicans win back the White House. We'll discuss all that and much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Welcome to the powers that be. I have the pleasure of being in the same area code as Abby Livingston, 202, put colleagues together in person to talk about the mayhem in Congress, specifically the Republican speakers race and the lack of a House speaker. Abby, how many days at this point are we without a speaker since Kevin McCarthy uh, got deposed? (laughs)
0: <laughs> I believe tomorrow will be the three-week anniversary, but I've lost count. We are we are definitely getting into Groundhog Day territory. <laughs> the way I would characterize it is we are settling into a routine amid the chaos.
1: <laughs> well, happy three-week anniversary to my Kevin. Uh, look, we have gone through Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan and Austin Scott and... and By the way, like several members, I I don't even recognize. And I feel like even if you cover Capitol Hill, you might not recognize some of these people.
0: I don't recognize a bunch of them.
1: (laughs) So I just pulled up an Axios uh, list of the nine. There are nine Republicans now vying for Speaker House Republicans heard from them Monday in a candidate forum behind closed doors. Sometimes I look at members of Congress and I'm like, these people could be interchangeable for like mid-major college basketball coaches, just like very like average looking white men in suits. Can you name off the top of your head, Abby, all nine of these people?
0: <laughs> I can name them, but not off the top of my head. I wrote them down because I thought you might ask. Um,
1: <laughs> you're you're smart. You're smart. The only one I know. Okay. Sorry. I know some of them. Yeah. Tom Emmer is the front runner, theoretically, uh, although week one, he is from Minnesota. Uh, we know Byron Donalds because he is a sort of vocal Trump supporter from Florida in Congress. I know Pete Sessions, Austin Scott. I only know because he tried to run for speaker a couple weeks ago. Same. Who, <laughs> who else is in the mix here to become the next speaker? And, and will any of them become speaker? Or are we just going to keep going and going and going until there's no real leader? It feels like no one can get to the magic number.
0: So we also have Kevin Hearn of Oklahoma and Gary Palmer of Alabama and Jack Bergman of Michigan and Dan Mouser, Mouser. And I'm ashamed to say, as a Capitol Hill correspondent, I don't know what state he's from, but I will have it momentarily. Pennsylvania. There we go. Um, I Yeah. So I think the, the headline from here is we're all paying attention to Tom Emmer. Uh-huh. He is in this mix because he's the majority whip and he's sort of next in line after Scalise was felled. And so um, Tom Emmer ran the National Republican Congressional Committee, which is the One member is chosen to lead the races to win as many seats as possible. So he did it for two terms, and they were fairly successful, even though they came up below expectations last year. It was enough to get the majority. NRCC chair is one of the worst jobs in Washington. Same thing on the other side. But you do it for this sort of reason. It's a good dues-paying job to prove your mettle and to rise up through the ranks. And he did a pretty good job at it, but I don't see any evidence as to why he he might have a better shot at this than Steve Scalise or Kevin McCarthy holding on. Um, And so I just got off the phone with a source who's pretty deep into House GOP politics. And this person characterized the whole situation as people are exhausted and there's increasing interest in putting this to bed. And also maybe that the anonymity of some of these members is actually kind of helpful because they haven't had an opportunity to really alienate people. There's less to be against with them, not in the criminal circumstances, but um, it could be sort of like a Dennis Hastert comparison of where someone kind of comes in. So I guess, long story, that that is sort of where we are.
1: So just to rewind a few days, It felt like, and by the way, Abby, I need to give you credit on your handicapping of all this stuff, because the number one thing you have said, which is really what every journalist covering politics should do, is here's what I think might happen, here's what I'm hearing might happen, but there are no guarantees. And it did feel like with Jim Jordan from Ohio, for a day, he was going to be speaker. They went through two votes, didn't get to the number. Why did Jim Jordan not make it over the hump?
0: Well, I mean, one thing uh, I was told just recent or just in the last hour was he did not have a terribly strong whip operation, which a whip operation is the informal network you unleash to persuade as many people as possible to line up behind you. And this happens at the staff level, the consultant level, Uh, fundraisers, lobbyists on K Street. But I think the real reason is This is my home Congresswoman from where I grew up, Kay Granger. She is the chairwoman of the Appropriations Committee. She's worked her whole career for nearly 30 years from this post. And when you sit there and think about what her one term as chair, because she's term limited out, they ruined her one year to run the spending of the American government and she's old school, she's from another era, um, and she'd had enough, and she brought friends with her. And so other appropriators, these are sort of the people who are very serious about governing. You generally do not get on that committee unless you're serious about making sure the government functions. She's pretty high up in the alphabet, and so when she she said no to Jordan, there were gasps in the in the room. People are still still talking about it. And that was sort of a signal to other people voting behind her that, you know, it's OK. The water's warm over here. You can cross the hardliners. And so it was basically the as opposed to the Matt Gates wing of the party, it was really kind of the normies who uh, helped sink Jim Jordan. And what was different. Jordan had several rounds of voting, but what was different with the Kevin McCarthy in January was when Kevin McCarthy's numbers kept growing and getting better for him and Jordan's kept getting worse and worse and worse. And so thank you for the compliment. But I was dead wrong a week ago when we taped last Monday night. I thought the train was leaving the station for Jim Jordan and it absolutely was not.
1: I seem to remember a caveat from you in there. I'm giving (laughs) you credit whether you you think you deserve it or not. I was yesterday reading Punchbowl News, Jake Sherman and John Bresnahan. Shout out to those guys. And they, you know, had at the very tail end of their punchbowl email yesterday morning, there's some chatter that Kevin McCarthy might be able to come back. Is that something that's realistic or no? I mean they poo-pooed it, but I'm curious what I your mean take our is. colleague
0: Tara has explored that some. I just don't see it happening. I just think that the wounds are so deep all over the place. And it's just sort of he's beaten up and the cuts are all there. And so it's its hard to see a resurrection there. But then again, we are I mean, for all of his flaws, for all of his weaknesses, he still has proven he's the best at getting the votes together to get as far as he got. And I think we also are just realizing this is just a truly ungovernable conference. And so um, I think in retrospect, he's probably looks a little bit better at leading than we thought in real time. But I don't see it happening. But weirder things have happened.
1: Yeah. What about the idea that Patrick McHenry, we've also discussed this from North Carolina, could be empowered to just pass legislation? He is the speaker pro tap right now, basically a placeholder. This has been sort of background chatter the whole time. Is it possible that he could become the sort of fake speaker until there's a new Congress?
0: There was some movement toward that happening in a very tangible way, and it just completely fell apart. I I mean, the number one takeaway from all of this is there's no obvious solution. Um, We may look up one day and they do have a solution, but every day that this goes on, it deteriorates. They keep having these behind closed door meetings that people are describing to me as therapy sessions. Things just continue to fester and get worse. I just cannot state this enough there's no sort of wizard figuring this out. Um, There's no master plan, there's no three-dimensional chess. This changes by the hour, (laughs) it feels very feral at times, and it is literally the most out of control situation I've seen in Washington, ever.
1: It feels feral, it feels VP. No one should think that these people are very sophisticated and have like a 5D chess plan. It is high school cafeteria level bickering at this point. One more thing, beyond the horse race stuff uh, and the, the cloakroom gossip, President Biden last week asked Congress for $105 billion, capital B, uh, in military aid for Israel and Ukraine. How does the dysfunction in the House impact the ability of that funding to make it through?
0: I think Israel is an impetus for Republicans to come together and move things forward. I think Ukraine does the opposite. It helps tear things apart because there's so much division over that issue. I'm not the first to make this point. I can't remember who's made it. But I do also think one of the interesting things that's going on is, you know, what Matt Gates did with vacating the chair and playing around with parliamentary procedure could also play here where I don't, claim to know the rules super well, but I, it would not shock me if Democrats and pro Ukraine Republicans are exploring procedural motions to come together and be able to force something on the floor for Ukraine. So it is it is just a very fragile situation, but that that's kind of how it seems at this point.
1: Abby, thank you very much. It was great talking to you.
0: Thanks for having me, Peter.
1: We come back Tina Wynn is here to talk about the Trump government in waiting. This podcast is proudly supported by Netflix, presenting the new series, The Gentleman. Theo James, Kaya Scodelario, and Daniel Ings star in what the playlist calls an entertaining crime comedy filled with style, panache, and laughs. The evening standard raves, The Gentleman is peak Guy Ritchie, impossible not to love. Now available only on Netflix.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Podcast, all lowercase. Go to Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Odyssey Podcast.
3: Welcome back, everybody. Ben Landy here with Tina Wynn Tina, happy Tuesday.
4: Happy Tuesday to you too. Uh do we still have a speaker yet? Probably <laughs> not.
3: At the time of recording this, no, we don't. And Peter and Abby were were actually just talking about the speakers race chaos earlier in this episode. But I I wanted to have you back on today to talk about something a little bit different, which is the sort of shadow government in exile that Trump supporters have been brainstorming into existence in think tank land in anticipation of him returning to the White House. Tell me more about your reporting into this because it is uh, mildly terrifying.
4: Yeah, of course. So there have been a couple of think tanks circling around the same idea, which is the president going into the next administration has broad executive authority to make a lot of unilateral political appointments to staff agencies put in charge of things like, you know, defense initiatives, the Postal Service, yada, 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 yada. And uh, the thing is, is that the conservative movement has glommed onto this idea and was like, hey, you know, it's a great idea. We could just like start staffing a government and casting around for who should fill these positions while he is out of office. So when the transition happens, we can come in, offer our suggestions and be like, here you go, Mr. President, here's what your government and policy should look like in order to wind back the woke state and get rid of elements within the government who are going to oppose your agenda and the conservative agenda. And initially, the conservative movement was like, all right, cool, yes, jump onto this thing led by the Heritage Foundation, which is the uh, great August granddaddy of the right. And all was going well until a separate think tank called the America First Policy Institute was like, but what if we did it? And they launched their own thing called the America First Transition Project, And when I started investigating this, I thought that just Project 2025 existed. And then all these people started going, yeah, but AFPI hasn't come on board and they've got their own thing going and they're uh, less true conservative than we are and they're full of swamp creatures and yada, yada, yada. And so I went to AFPI and they said, well, the thing is, is that we believe that there are a lot of roles for everyone to play in staffing the next Republican administration, whoever it may be. And it's just so petty and funny to me, uh, just because it has echoes of the first Trump administration where everyone was knifing each other, except this time it's conservative policy activists and former Trump officials who are like playing courtiers with each other. On the other hand, at a deeper level... It is terrifying, as you put it, Ben, because it shows how far in advance people are anticipating Trump coming back into power within the Republican Party and the conservative movement and planning for their own agendas to be executed, not even on day one. It's like during the transition itself.
3: Right. This this seems sort of uncharacteristically organized of this crew to be getting their act together Two years in advance, they they started on this project, uh, Project 2025. But yes, it's also deeply comical, of course, that this being Trump's Republican Party, you have this one big group of think tanks, some of whom you noted are are sort of aligned with Ron DeSantis working on the one project, and then this other smaller upstart breakaway group that is more plugged into the old Trump administration. And there's some interesting names associated with uh, AFPI, right? Like they've got Kellyanne Conway, Hogan Gidley, who have their own rival plan. But the Heritage Group has real connections to Trump world too. So where do you sort of see this shaking out in terms of the pecking order of these two rival initiatives?
4: I mean, here's the thing. I wouldn't say the heritage-led movement is Trump-connected so much as it is deeply reflective of conservative policy and conservative activist politics over the past, oh, 20 years. So on top of heritage, which is tilted in a bit more populist of a direction in the past couple of years, you've got the Claremont Institute, where uh, famously the lawyer John Eastman comes from, who tried to cobble together a legal rationale for the events of January 6. It's also a think tank that was connected to the college I went to. There's, I think, the Conservative Policy Institute, which is connected to a lot of the lawmakers who held up Kevin McCarthy's initial confirmation as speaker, Young Republicans Foundation, Turning Point USA, Moms for Liberty, just like you name it. It's probably on there if it's an activist conservative group that's existed for oh, I don't know, like, pre-Trumpism is probably on board here. And their goal was to put together a conservative administration and get all of the conservatives on the same page saying, here is how we think your administration should go. And it was a bit of a turnkey operation, as one of my sources explained it. And it could be used for whatever Republican president came on board. But since it's, you know, probably going to be Trump, it's going to tilt it's going to try to exploit its Trump links as much as possible. And inside that organization, they have people who were both in the Trump administration and focused on hiring personnel. So the biggest person they have on board who one person described to me as their secret weapon is Johnny McEntee, who used to be Trump's body man in the White House, then became uh, head of White House personnel and uh, reportedly directed agencies to fire career staffers who they deemed to be less than loyal to Trump. And apparently he was supposed to be in charge of the second Trump transition team if he'd won. So that moment, he would have absolutely gone in and purged all the deep state, quote unquote, officials that weren't loyal to Trump's agenda. Trump is still really close with him and trusts him a lot. So there is a really high chance that he could turn to Johnny and be like, you, I trusted you back when we were in the White House, I still trust you now, who should I pick from this giant pool of candidates that Heritage and the Project 2025 have pulled together? On the other hand, AFPI's uh, structure is basically the entire Trump administration who had roles in the federal government and want to go back to them in order to execute Trumpist policy. And you could argue who's more true to the president's agenda versus not true. But AFPI not only has experience trying to maneuver around what it is that Trump decided on a day-to-day basis, and they're more populist, some of their policy is, quote-unquote, conservative, but it is probably the purest expression of Donald Trump's id, And I don't know which direction Trump is going to go in, and neither do they. They both kept emphasizing to me repeatedly that, like, it was always up to the discretion of whoever becomes president. So those are sort of the uh, policy delineations that you have going on there. Uh, AFPI can only really exist with Trump in power. Heritage could probably exist for a thousand more years.
3: Yeah, Tina, I'm sure you're right that Trump, at the end of the day, he's just going to pick and choose from these plans, from the, the the people and proposals that are in front of him. But it's truly fascinating that, that they're doing this at all. Like, I don't know what would have been more disconcerting, Trump returning as president with the same level of disorganization and dysfunction as he did the first time around, or coming back to the White House with this fully vetted, pre-approved, you know, 100-point plan to disembowel the administrative state, replace every government agency with Trump goons. And of course, he's got this massive database now um, for both of these groups of names of people who are Trump ideologues, who've come up through the conservative movement and are trained and vetted by these groups. But tell me more about sort of the, the day one plan that other of these groups have and what they would do in the, the first hundred days. What what kind of specific things are we talking about here?
4: So we're talking about things like high, like not just putting the correct people in place, but rolling back certain policies eliminating certain programs, ending funding to Ukraine immediately, it's all kind of similar because they all understand that the conservative voter base, not necessarily, quote unquote, the movement, but the voter base is champing for certain things. So I think like woke policies, quote unquote, like um, diversity, equity and inclusion initiatives, certain election protections would definitely be removed from any sort of executive government that uh, Trump would lead. When Trump was first elected, the transition was so chaotic that there were too many competing ideological interests thrown in, not just personalities who were always in there knifing each other in the back. And that was the thing that everyone was obsessed with because it was so sexy. And oh, my God.
3: Right. The palace intrigue.
4: The palace intrigue was like funny, but the thing is, is that the reason there was so much palace intrigue in the first place wasn't necessarily because of ego. It was because there were all these competing ideologies at play. And both of these organizations traced it back to the messy nature of the transition itself. Uh, Since Trump didn't think he was going to get elected, he didn't put together a transition playbook in place of like, What are we going to do on day one? Who are we going to hire? Who are we going to try to get rid of? And it was helmed by so many different people. Like, it went from Chris Christie, then it went to Jared Kushner, and then all of these people started coming in with their own agendas. The establishment Republican Party had Reince Priebus, and the Javanka crowd had Jared and Ivanka, and a bunch of New Yorkers who had a bit more of the... uh, Trump's kind of populist, but, you know, he was one of us, so shh, it'll be fine. Versus the Steve Bannon MAGA types who were like, we've got to burn everything down. we got to ban the Muslims. we got to do everything and break the government. Yada yada yada. yeah.
3: Part of, you know, well, part of what you're describing is that Trump himself was sort of a blank slate. I mean, he, he had like a handful of ideas and grievances and slogans on the campaign trail. But it really did seem at times like he was making up what Trumpism would become sort of on the fly in the White House. And what's going to be different this time around is not just the increased organization and this ideological and political infrastructure that has now been built around him, is that he probably also has a, a better understanding of his own political ideology as well. In one of your pieces, you, you, you talked to the, uh, the chair of AFPI who noted that in Biden's first day or two in the White House, he signed 19 executive orders, whereas Trump had only done one. Of course, part of the reason that Biden did that is he was just overturning a ton of Trump executive orders. But I have to imagine that if Trump is reelected, we're going to see a lot of that, that there's going to be an immediate resetting, not just a clearing out of the civil service, but a return to all of the policies that were negated when Biden stepped in. So there's going to be a ton of change. And it looks like they're doing a lot of work to get ahead of it.
4: Oh, absolutely. Ultimately, Trump is going to decide what to do here. And the fighting is still going to be hilarious but watching what these two groups do is going to be really crucial to understanding what trump is going to do if he returns to power
3: yeah funny and mildly hilarious um but but interesting to watch from the sidelines tina thanks as always appreciate having you on here thanks thanks so much for listening to another episode of the powers that be as a reminder the powers that be is the official podcast of puck we'd like to thank ben landy and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.